I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's March 4th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your editors here at Airmail obsessed with fashion, beauty, and Shakespeare in love. <laughs> we are. Do you want to explain that in short order? Why is that funny, Michael? It's true. It is true. No, I just love it. It's a perfect summation of Airmail this week. But in particular, I know a story that you're fascinated by about Shakespeare in love, right? I mean, it's only one of my favorite movies. I used to watch the movie every year. Now I'm going to be rereading this 6,500 word article by Edward Zwick on it every year as well, because this is, I mean, revelation after revelation about the making of this incredible film and the people behind it. I don't even know where to begin. It's just so delicious. Well, it is delicious and it's a delicious issue. And as you sort of alluded to, we have an eye-opening show today, Ashley. We've got Linda Wells joining us with the exciting news about what she and you have been cooking up over the past few months. A great addition to Airmail called Airmail Look, and we will hear all about that shortly. And then speaking of news, Brian Stelter has details about the mess at Fox News, and in particular around Maria Bartiromo as the network faces its big lawsuit with Dominion voting machines. And finally... Fashion Week has just concluded, and Vassie Chamberlain will be joining us with a story of the rising superstar designer who mysteriously disappeared from the fashion world at the height of her powers, but has now resurfaced. And I know Ashley is very excited about that. So Ashley, where do you want to begin today? On this first Saturday of March, I don't know, you, you're you coming in like a lion, as always, and I love that, even though you've got the personality of a lamb. So where do you want to begin? Aww. My family might disagree with you on that. Let's start with bad behavior, Michael, as always. I mean, let's get Brian on here to talk about this scandal at Fox News. It's been an exciting week in cable news, although I suppose you could say that every week in cable news is exciting. But we have a marvelous story about the situation at Fox News, and we have none other than Brian Stelter here to talk about it. He was the host of CNN's Reliable Sources show for many years, and now he's written a great story for Airmail. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thank you. Good to be here. All right. So take us back. When you were coming up in journalism, Maria Bartiromo was an important character. Tell us a little bit about how you discovered her and how you found her when you were coming of age. Well, she was a trailblazer. She was a pioneer for women in the television industry and also for business journalists of all kinds, of all ages. The first broadcaster on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, legend on CNBC for basically two decades. And as a reporter at the New York Times and then at CNN, I covered Bartiromo as a story. It was a big deal when she jumped from CNBC to Fox Business about a decade ago. It was a very expensive contract that Roger Ailes 
sales gave her. She became this morning show star for Fox Business. She had a weekend show on Fox News. I would always watch her show when I was getting ready for my Sunday morning show on CNN. And over time, I watched her radicalize. I watched her become this Trump extremist. And that really played out in the wake of the 2020 election, which is what I've written about for Airmail. Okay, so in short, how do you think she became so radicalized and so much of a mouthpiece for Trump? It's interesting that this phrase you hear over and over again among TV news nerds. You say, what happened to Maria Bartiromo? This is a very popular phrase. It's a popular question. It gets discussed and debated among her former colleagues and co-workers, her friends from CNBC. She even worked at CNN before CNBC. So a lot of people who crossed paths with her over the years, they've all wondered, what happened? How did this happen? I think it's pretty clear, and you can see it in the legal filings that we're going to talk about, that she actually became a true believer, that this wasn't just a cynical calculation, although maybe it was in part and maybe at first in order to play to the Fox audience and the Trump base. But she actually believes some of what, at least some of what she's saying on television about Trump. She went on the air one day after Trump lost and said, I have an intel source that says Trump actually won the election. So that's a crazy thing to say on live television. And that would get me in a lot of trouble if I was on live TV and I claimed I had an anonymous source that the loser was actually the winner. I mean, I would be hauled into meetings. There would be disciplinary action. But for Bartiromo, it was just another day at work, just out there spouting on TV what Trump and his friends wanted to hear. I view this as a radicalization story that she really, truly believed some of it. But she also believed it was helpful for her ratings and her brand to go full MAGA. Which takes us to the sort of center of this piece. She does go full MAGA. And as you note in your story, this is about Dominion v. Fox News, the case by the voting machine company alleging libel and slander. And as you said, it sort of puts succession to shame. But she's, as you point out, she's named 95 times in the recent legal brief and 69 times in Fox News' recent response. So take us through those days right after the election and how she's now the centerpiece of presenting this myth that warrants potentially $1.6 billion in damages, right? Right. Dominion is suing for an incredible amount of money, and this thing is careening toward a trial that could start in April. Maybe Fox wants to settle. Maybe Dominion doesn't want to. So far, both sides have been incredibly aggressive in presenting their cases through these legal filings. And as I read through them, hundred, multiple hundred-page filings, I was struck by how much Bartiromo was a part of the story. Because when we think about Fox, we think about Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, these are the biggest stars on the network. These are the primetime players. Bartiromo is a smaller figure because she's on a lower-rated business channel, and then she's only on a once-a-week show on the big Fox News channel. And yet, her fingerprints were all over this story. She was on the air. She was the first television anchor on Fox to mention Dominion, to prompt a Trump lawyer to smear Dominion. And then she did it again the following week. And then she had Trump on the air lying about Dominion as well by the end of November 2020. So in the weeks after Trump lost, Bartiromo was critical in presenting an alternative narrative, a fiction, that maybe he actually won, that maybe he could actually hold on to power, that maybe Biden wouldn't ever get inaugurated. And we all know that those weeks between the election and the insurrection were critical because obviously it some people believed the lies and ran up the steps of the Capitol and tried to attack our seat of democracy. There's a lot of blame to go around, but it's clear in these legal filings that some of it starts with Bartiromo, that she's the first person on Fox to mainstream the anti-Dominion conspiracy theories that promoted voter fraud lies. Now, Fox says she did her job responsibly. She was just asking questions. And I suppose it's true. She did technically say to the guests, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? 
but I was on TV at the same days, at the same times. I knew better than to do that. Most of us knew that this was a ridiculous lie perpetuated by the desperate team of folks who lost an election. And we didn't pretend like it was anything serious. For some reason, she went along with it. And maybe that's because she truly believed it. I mean, if there's a text message that she sent on November 20th that said she really believes there was fraud and that they, these conspiratorial forces, were trying to get Trump out of office. So maybe she truly believed it. But that's so striking for someone who, Bartiromo was this business broadcasting star. I remember dancing with her on a dance floor at a private party at David Zasloff's house in the Hamptons years ago. I saw her just six weeks ago in Davos at the World Economic Forum. She still is inside these elite circles and showing up at these parties and hobnobbing with her famous friends. And yet she helped mainstream a Looney Tunes conspiracy theory about election fraud that helped lead to an insurrection. And I think the accountability for that is still only partly underway. And this lawsuit, Dominion at least believes, one of the ways to have accountability for these lies and this deception is to sue and to go to court. And we will we'll see if they have a legal victory. But I think they've already had a journalistic and moral victory by getting some of these facts out into the public circulation and by pointing out what Bartiromo and others did in that post-election period. Brian, for the moment, Fox is sticking with Bartiromo. They've come out clearly in defense of her. Do you think it'll last forever? That's a really interesting question. I did call up Fox News PR for comment for the story, as I always do. The defense is basically the same you read in the legal filings, which is, we were just covering a really newsworthy story. This was big news. This was a sitting president who was making these allegations, and we just asked him for evidence. Now, that's not really what happened. I mean, I'll never forget November 29th. It's the first day Trump gave an interview three weeks after losing the election. And so he's sitting in the White House. He calls into Maria's show. They just have like a really friendly chat. She sits back and just lets him dissemble. And it's clear by the end of November that the president is delusional. But she didn't say that. She didn't say so. She didn't call it out. She didn't condemn his anti-democratic behavior. And I remember it really vividly because I was on the air an hour later. And I tried to say all those things and tried to describe what was actually happening because pretty scary, right? I mean, none of us knew there was going to be a January 6th at that point. But it was already scary to have a sitting president in denial that he lost the election and trying to overturn the results. And for Bartiromo to sit there and just play along with it was so strange striking. But Fox was okay with it, clearly, because now more than two years later, she's still on the air. She is still a big star on the network, especially on Fox Business. So clearly the network has her back. They have lots of ways to change that if they didn't want to support her. They clearly do support her. However, that said, this lawsuit is a major blow. And if it ends up in court and Dominion ends up winning and getting a lot of money, it's a major, major blow for Fox News. It's not a death blow, but it is a major financial blow and reputational blow. And one does have to wonder if there will be, I hate to use the word scapegoats, but one has to wonder if Fox will proverbially throw somebody overboard in order to try to make this go away or make this look not so bad. We actually did see Fox do that shortly after another voting company, Smartmatic, filed a lawsuit against Fox. Lou Dobbs suddenly disappeared. He was suddenly ousted from Fox business. Dobbs was doing basically the same stuff Maria Bartiromo was doing on the air. You could make some arguments that maybe his show was a little more egregious or a little less egregious, but they were basically two of the same figures, and he was ousted and she was not. So in retrospect, I wonder if Fox was trying to have a sacrificial lamb out there in order to take some of the pressure off. But if that was the attempt, it certainly didn't work because these lawsuits have continued. They've progressed quite a bit. Now we've learned through the discovery process all of these embarrassing secrets. Rupert Murdoch even confessing that his network, that some of his stars enabled this anti-democratic conduct. And Bartiromo was chief among them. I find it fascinating, as you also note, well, two things. One is, I think there's plenty of long knives in the hallways of Fox News at some point, which will come out when you even have like people like Tucker Carlson saying, like, this is her stuff is absurd and what she was peddling. I also wonder if 
Rupert and company have to sort of, you don't want to dump her overboard now because it looks like she's guilty, right? So you've got to stick with her until things play out, right? As you sort of just noted with Lou Dobbs, like if they lose the case, then you dump her. But now it's like you don't want to admit any weakness if that's possible. Because I also, I love your note in the story as well, that part of DeFox's defense is against Dominion's defamation claim is that she actually believed the bullshit, as you say. I mean, how do you prove that as a journalist, she didn't believe it? That's going to seem an interesting point with if this comes to trial. It really is an important factor in all of this. The Washington Post wrote this week, a key part of Fox's defense strategy appears to rest on many of the conspiratorial themes that prompted the lawsuit in the first place. So basically, Fox is citing these election conspiracy theories to say, well, this was out there in the ether. This was in the news. We needed to cover it because this was people were reading this on the Internet. And to that, I say. You have a responsibility that comes with the microphone and the megaphone and the cameras and the lights and the platform. You have a responsibility. And I'm not claiming that we always did it perfectly at CNN. I made my share of mistakes when I was an anchor there. I probably put some conspiratorial crap on the air without realizing it when I was interviewing Kellyanne Conway or Jason Miller. But when you're in those interviews or when you're choosing your segments or choosing your angles, you do have to think about the audience and whether you're helping or harming the audience. And fundamentally, Fox was harming the audience by making them feel that maybe there was hope, that maybe Trump really could win, that maybe he could stay in power, that maybe he could figure out a way to keep Biden out. That hope, that was a false hope. At the end of the day, I feel sad. I feel a sense of sadness about this, about the audience being manipulated and deceived, about the hosts being so desperate to hold on to their ratings that they were willing to play along with this and pretend that something was going to happen when it wouldn't. And that's like the ethical and moral dynamic that may or may not play out in the courtroom, but I think is already playing out in the court of public opinion thanks to these legal filings. Brian, last 15 seconds. If you were a betting man, number one, does this case go to trial? Number two, how does it play out? If I were Fox, I would want to settle. I wouldn't want Rupert Murdoch on the stand. So there's still a month and a half before trial. Do I have to bet on it? If I had to bet on it, I would say that there's some sort of settlement. I'll probably be wrong because I was wrong about a lot in the Trump years. It's a fantastic story. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Brian. Okay, well, that's one heck of a story. Michael, you know what? This whole thing is giving me major bombshell vibes. I'm talking about the movie, by the way, from 2019, Bombshell with Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman, and Margot Robbie. That's about the women of Fox News who went out to expose CEO Roger Ailes. Delicious. I loved reading the notes about the deposition this week of Murdoch. And you know my obsession with succession, but it's just it's like you can't help but picture Brian Cox in that room. So, F- off. <laughs> that's my best Brian Cox, Mr. Roy impression. Did you read his book, by the way? I did. Yeah. That guy can do it all. He can do it all. All right. Well, let's move on to more superficial matters. And I don't even feel bad about saying that because I know Linda Wells would say the same thing. Michael, would you have ever thought that Graydon Carter would be sufficiently fascinated with the world of beauty and wellness that he would launch an entire new monthly magazine around the topic? No, not surprised at all. First of all, we have a very exciting new development in the airmail verse, as we like to call it this week, with yesterday's publication of Airmail Look, which is our new monthly magazine all about the wild, weird, and wonderful world of beauty and wellness. Linda Wells is the editor of Airmail Look, in addition to being the beauty and wellness columnist for Airmail. And we are thrilled to have her here today to talk about all things gorgeous. Welcome, Linda Wells. Okay, Linda Wells, it's an exciting day for us. Not only do we get to introduce you as Airmail's beauty and wellness columnist, but you are the new editor of our new monthly magazine, Airmail Look, which came out yesterday. First of all, how many hours of sleep have you had this week? Two. 
I've had two hours. <laughs> I feel so fresh. I'm using every beauty product I've ever owned at the same time. <laughs> well, Look is fabulous. Tell us all about it. What's the ethos? When can we expect it? Just give us the details. Look is a deep dive into a shallow topic. Some might say it's superficial, but we like to go deep on superficial. If you can take an oxymoron and stretch it as much as possible. It looks at beauty and wellness through a whole lifestyle lens and encompasses everything from the obvious hair, makeup, skin, to the unexpected like sex and longevity and crazy behavior in Silicon Valley. And it investigates and it celebrates and it does all the things. I would just like to add as the guy here that I told Ashley before we came on the air, fantastic. The issue looks as we noted it dropped yesterday. But also that it's just bears saying that it's not simply for the ladies. This is something for everyone. I mean, you've got fantastic reporting, as you said, out in Silicon Valley and the tech bros being obsessed with living forever. You've got a great story of cultural reporting. So as we all know, it's a world where health and wellness and beauty and appearances now goes across the whole spectrum of who we are, right? That's right. I mean, I think it's so much broader than it ever has been before. And it's a huge business. And it's an interest that is not just for the predictable audience that it's usually served. I think that there's a great range to it. And that's what makes it so much fun. And I think that's what makes it right for airmail. When I started writing my Eye of the Beholder column for airmail in 2021, my sort of secret goal was to make sure that Graydon didn't hate it and also to somewhat scandalize him if any, whenever possible. So I think that because this is not a typical beauty magazine and I've done beauty magazines and I love them, but I think it's a really fun thing to stretch our muscles and really cover this in all of its glory, thinking about things like travel and restaurants and food and just a very sophisticated lifestyle approach. So on that note, tell us about your favorite story in the issue. Oh, I don't have a favorite. I like them all. Come on, they're my children, like everything. But there are so many great stories in this. We have a story that we're calling the $2 million makeover. And it's about all these men who are experiencing midlife crises. And rather than having an affair or buying a sports car, they're hiring longevity coaches and getting into biohacking and going to cryotherapy and infrared and getting HGH injections. And it's really over the top. It makes your Park Avenue beauty person look like a slacker. So that's really fun. We have a story about Barbara Sturm, the extraordinarily successful skincare savant, really. She's created an enormous line with an enormous number of products and seems to be everywhere, including on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard that just went up a few weeks ago where she's naked. So we talk about her success story. And I have a column about what is low maintenance and what's high maintenance and where do the two collide? And is there really such a thing as doing everything you need to do for beauty? It seems to be endless. And it kind of refers to what you were saying, Ashley. It used to be that beauty was what you did to get out the door and into the world. And now it is the world. So sort of have we lost the plot? I would have to say, I would encourage everyone to read the Barbara Stern piece by Brendan Kilbane, because to me, it captures again, what I said is like, why it's a great magazine in and of itself, because this is great cultural reporting. I mean, to me, I've seen 
Barbara Sturm, all over the taxi cabs of New York City for the last couple of years. She's become sort of like this 21st century version of Dr. Zismore on the subway ads back in the day. Oh, but so much more, so much higher end. No, but so much worse, but she's like Dr. Zismore for the money set. Yeah, she's like an Estee Lauder of our time. That's pretty high praise, Linda. I mean, who is she? And what is she? It's a tremendous sort of like look at someone who seems to be everywhere, but you know nothing about her and how she's shaping these worlds and these faces that we all know. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think that this is a, we're in a time right now where there has been an enormous explosion in the beauty world, particularly in skincare, where all sorts of people have entered this world who were never, it was never possible before because it was really populated by big business that needed a big infrastructure in order to make a real living at it. And so now it's opened up to all sorts of people like Emily Weiss of Glossier and Barbara Sturm and Augustus Botter and really these real founders who have had this enormously fast trajectory. And that's so interesting. And so it's a cultural story. It's a business story. It's a behavioral story. All those things are what make this subject interesting and right for airmail. And Linda, for those of us who love retail, and there are many of us out there, there is shopping. And we start off our fabulous air supply column, which is our e-commerce operation here at Airmail, with a look inside your personal medicine cabinet. Now tell me, how revealing does it really get? Well, here's a little tip. I don't keep any medicine in my medicine cabinet. And I think about it. I am constantly editing it. I'm obsessed with it. I don't think it's something for a private person. I think it's something that I expect if I have people over for people to go into it because they're curious. And it is all my good stuff. And I rotate things out all the time. But I had to keep the number to, I think, 25 or 26. I can't remember. And so it's all the things that I use in my shower and in my medicine cabinet. So basically skin, body, hair. One thing you no longer keep in your medicine cabinet, although I know you've got a tube of it somewhere, is Bain de Soleil. And I love this nostalgia idea that we have in Airmail Loke in which you get to go back to a beauty product or something in our universe that has made waves that we can't seem to forget and look at exactly how it got there. And first up is Bain de Soleil. Tell us about that. Well, I love Bain de Soleil because it draws so many images. It's sort of a romantic past of like an imaginary Saint-Tropez where Everybody was tan, which you can't do anymore. And your sunscreen was delivered to you on a silver platter by a man in a tuxedo, which is what the ad showed. But it turns out that the sunscreen ultimately wasn't entirely French and isn't entirely a sunscreen, but it is sexy. So there's that. And I have a couple of tubes at home and I've just discovered they're going for about five or $600 on resale sites. So I can save that as my nest egg. I mean, Bande Soleil is great. It's a great nostalgia piece, but again, you're sort of on the cutting edge and explaining things that maybe you don't quite know yet. For instance, I just learned about underpainting. So <laughs> you're this cultural radar. So explain to everyone, because now I know what it is, what underpainting is. <laughs> a makeup artist named Mary Phillips, who does a lot of famous faces and she's extremely talented. I've worked with her on shoots before. She has developed a technique where, and she's shown it on TikTok and it's been embraced by Haley Bieber. So enough said, but where you apply your contour first, Michael, as I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Can't you see on the screen? Look, I followed the lessons. I did it right before I came here. Perfection. I'm so sorry. This isn't visual for everybody else, but the contouring is like 
astonishing. So anyway, you put all your contour on and then you apply your makeup on top of that. And it's a lot. It's a lot. People go crazy for it. So we have a reporter, Sable Young, who's writing about the biggest TikTok beauty trends because beauty is a real phenomenon on TikTok. All right. Well, Linda, we can get Airmail Look first Friday of every month, right? It's coming out first thing in the morning. And any questions, comments, or concerns, you know where to find Linda. She is ready and waiting for reader feedback, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Yes. Call my agent. <laughs> Linda, thank you so much. Congratulations thank you. on this and thank you. first issue. Congratulations, Linda and Ashley. I'm tempted just to stop the show now. If you haven't read the Barbara Storm story, go read it. Definitely kept us up a lot this week, but it is fascinating. Okay, Ashley, so everyone's going to want to get airmail look. How do they get it? And tell us where they go to register and everything involved. And so they make sure they get every issue beginning with this week's. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Go to airmail.news backslash look. Once again, for the people in the back, airmail.news backslash look look and you can sign up you will get the issue and we really hope you enjoy it any questions comments or concerns send them all to michael just kidding (laughs) any comments questions or concerns about registering yes any comments questions or concerns about beauty wellness skincare send them to linda and to ashley because they are the experts i can be the back order guy fulfillment guy in the back room that's my job but the other ones these ladies will have it for you all right michael now moving on to fashion we've tackled beauty and we've got a lot to talk about in the world of fashion fashion week has just concluded I'm sure you've been busy click, 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 clicking through all the shows, but there's an even more exciting story this week, right? Yeah, I think like, you know, what development in the fashion world has gotten even more attention than Kanye West's quasi cancellation? It would be the return of Phoebe Philo, the incredibly beloved and highly successful designer, once the creative director of Celine, who is returning with her own LVMH-backed brand in September of this year. And she just announced it a few weeks ago, and no one can stop talking about it. Vassie Chamberlain, a writer-at-large for Airmail, is here to tell us the inside story. Welcome, Vassie. Okay, Vassie, for the uninitiated, who is Phoebe Philo? So Phoebe Philo is a British designer who was very quickly found out about her skill was because she went straight from St. Martin's, which is the great fashion college in London, art and fashion, to a job with Stella McCartney, who at the time was the head designer for Chloe. And she quickly started making a name for herself which is unusual in fashion that somebody who is under the principal designer gets known. But I remember very clearly hearing about this prodigy at Stella McCartney who was behind many of the most successful accessories and some of the looks. So it wasn't surprising when Stella left Chloe to go and head up her own label, Stella McCartney. And as soon as Phoebe started designing for Chloe, everyone suddenly became totally crazy for it. And she embodied the Chloe girl. Everything about Chloe, which Karl Lagerfeld had been the designer before. And it's very much the spirit of a renegade French girl who is chic, but is a lot more... 70s inspired in her dressing. So her tenure at Chloe lasted for five years. And then she was poached to become the head designer 
the head of fashion at Celine. And this is when everything went crazy. She started off quite slow and hesitantly in her first two collections. I spoke to the editor of the Financial Times as how to spend it. And she said it took her two seasons. And then once she got those behind her, suddenly this very strong aesthetic came out. And what was interesting about that aesthetic was how minimal it was. You could be forgiven for thinking, actually, there are plenty of brands who do that. But Phoebe's secret sauce was that while it was minimal, there was something edgy to it. Everything was a bit more extra than just the minimal. The cut was far bigger. The materials she used were far more interesting. The shape was asymmetric, but somehow worked. And the fashion industry, the editors became obsessive about her. And I think coupled with that was also her reluctance to be front and center, to be the face of that brand. And I think no one knew much about her as well. And also she was very reluctant to give anything away about herself. So as this brand grew and as everyone became more obsessive about it, she retreated more and more and would not give interviews, was barely seen at the end of the show, was not going out on the town promoting her wares. And the cult of Phoebe Philo grew to such an extent that when she left Celine very unexpectedly after 10 years, there was an outcry. And that outcry and that desperation to get more of Phoebe Philo in the fashion world has, if anything, grown stronger since she left. How do you think things are going to be different for her this time? Can you give us a sense of what the operation behind Phoebe Philo is like? So I think it's going to be quite a pared down collection from what I hear. I think there's going to be short and small drops. I don't think it's going to be season-led. I don't think it's going to be, there aren't going to be any shows. There aren't going to, there's not going to be the same adherence to convention. So I think that it will also only be digital. And I think it's going to be an extraordinary success. And I imagine there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be logging on when she drops it in September and the site is going to crash. But I think summing it up, I think she's going to stick to that aesthetic of hers, which is minimal, pared down, a bit artistic and different and extremely cool. So when you talk about she's still a little bit cloaked in mystery in some ways. I mean, outside of Alessandra McKelly walking away from Gucci or however that unfolded recently, do we have any theories as to why she left, why she walked away? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? So I think the word that I heard most often when I spoke to fashion editors and editors was fragility fragile. I do know that she found the machine of fashion too much for her. She had her first child a year before she started at Celine. And I think she found the going to and from Paris very hard. I believe, not unlike many women, she did suffer from postpartum depression. I don't know that for a fact, but it is something that I've heard. I think naturally as a character, she's not somebody who is necessarily doesn't want to be part of the machine and she protects herself. There are two Phoebes and that's one thing which is very clear. 
There's Phoebe, who is a mother and a wife who lives in the West Country near a village called Bruton in Somerset, where she has a very ordinary life by comparison. And there is Fashion Phoebe, who was described to me as very highly strung. So whatever the reasons are, I would say they are about protecting mental health. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's actually rather lovely, this the story of Phoebe Philo, because I don't really remember, since I've been working in this business, a designer who women have championed to such a degree and whose return has been sort of anticipated with such excitement. And I hope that the industry is careful in the way in which it treats her and understands. And I get the impression that everyone is actually very invested in that. Well, Vasi, thank you so much. More to come soon. Break out your neon florals and your trapezoidal eyewear because we are all on board for this Phoebe moment. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. And lovely to speak to you both. Okay, Michael. Click, click, click. Sign us up. Click, click, click. Before we go off into the weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? I'm going to do a speed round because first, I just want to say that thanks to you, I came to the HBO series, The Last of Us, which I'm probably like many people a little late to getting to, but I have to say it's pretty fantastic. It's a little slow in getting started. They had to lay a lot of railroad track to sort of get the story moving, but pretty terrific for a show based on a video game. Right? Yeah, right? I mean, it gave me reason to actually like video games. Like, I always thought that they were evil because I have a nine-year-old boy who's obsessed with them. And now I'm kind of trying to have more of an open mind. And it's all my favorite dystopian 70s, whether it's Soylent Green or Omega Man, it all seems to be there. So even a little bit of Planet of the Apes, so loving it. Then I wanted to just raise another documentary that's nominated for an Oscar this year. Have you seen Fire of Love? No, I have not. Okay, this is a wild, beautiful film. It's basically a love triangle about two volcanologists and their obsession with, of course, volcanoes. And they are French, a French couple. The film is part science, part visual poetry, but it puts you on the edge of these infernos as you watch them sort of like do their research on it. It's, but it's crazy mesmerizing, true tale of obsession. It's great. I highly recommend it. So what do you got? I wish I could say yes. I mean, I just, for no real reason, I read In Love, which was Amy Bloom's memoir of the last months with her husband who had Alzheimer's and they went to Switzerland, where he chose to end his life with the help of the Swiss organization Dignitas. It's pretty fascinating. Have you read this or heard about this? It came out last year, so I'm a little bit late to the game, but... I've heard about it. I don't have the courage to read it. I thought I was going to be really saddened by it, but you recommend it. I'm sure it's powerful. Yeah, it's sad and powerful and it ends more hopefully than it began. Look, if you don't like sad things, wouldn't recommend it. But if you're interested, she's a novelist and I've enjoyed some of her novels. So I thought this was a really humane way of looking at death that I found really interesting. And then another thing in the lightning round is, have you read Jennifer Egan's The Candy House? No, I'm dying to read it because I'm a huge fan of her work. I am too. Visit to the Goon Squad is like... Amazing. But yeah, I really like this. And it's funny because the reviews were a little bit all over the place on it, but it's incredibly masterful the way the narrative comes together and really reflects the times that we live in. I'm putting it on the list. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We want to give a massive thanks to our sponsor, Chanel. We love you, Chanel. And Michael, will you please read us out? Of 
course, Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meaning. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. But most of all, as always, thank you again for joining us.